Dotnet Rocks episode 694 with guest Carrie Hamill. Recorded live Thursday, August 25th, 2011. This episode is brought to you by Telerik and by Franklin's.net, training developers to work smarter. And now offering video training on Silverlight 4 with Billy Hollis and SharePoint 2010 with Sahil Malik. Order online now at franklins.net. And now here are Carl and Richard. Thank you very much and welcome back to .NET Rocks. Uh, we're here still, still here after all these years. Coming up on 700, my friend. It's going to be fun. Yes, yeah, right around build. I'm sure yeah. we'll do something bad. It, well, you know, it's going to be a fun show. Yes. But it will also be wildly speculative and entertaining. Let's say that. Because that's the way we like it. That's the way we like it. <laughs> <laughs> entertaining is not the word to describe what we have in store. The plans we have. Mm. Mm. Richard, let's get right into Better Know Framework. <laughs> Love it. All right, my friend, what do you And got? I'd also like you to know that the Franklin Brothers, that's me, album, you. Lifeboat to Nowhere, is getting rave reviews. You can get it at franklinbros.com. All right, here we go. It's the HTML5 keygen tag. Nice. Keygen. The keygen tag uh, specifies a key pair generator field used for forms. Hmm. When the form is submitted, the private key is stored locally, and the public key is sent to the server. Here's the thing. Sounds great, right? Yep. Not implemented in Internet Explorer or Safari. Oh. However, it is in Firefox, Opera, and Chrome. And this gets to the point, Richard, that you're making, which is, if browser equals this, Do if this. browser equals that, yeah. This is new in HTML5. Uh, essentially, you have the, the key type attribute, which specifies the security algorithm of the key. RSA generates an RSA key. And then you have you have RSA and other, so that's pretty much <laughs> that's pretty much your uh, yeah. That's all there is. There that's is all there is. And then there's a couple more. So you know, it's another another way to to do that key pair thing, which you know it's need it's necessary if you're going to start any kind of encryption. Yep. To pass a, a a generated key to the server that is then used to encrypt and decrypt. So it's sort of like doing your own SSL in the browser. Tricky. Tricky. But useful. Yeah, I don't know. And not implemented everywhere. So not implemented be everywhere because you know I'm uh, use use SS use uh HTTPS. Yeah, you know, I think that's maybe what's going on here. That's safer. Yeah. All right, who's talking to us? I grabbed a comment off of show 679. So that was uh, Jeff Smith and Howard Van Ruyen about uh, Sharp architecture. Yeah. You remember that? I We've do. had lots of conversation with Howard since, actually. He's a, uh, a good friend of the show. Yeah. And uh, during the show, of course, whenever we record, we always tweet out, hey, we're talking to so-and-so, and often we get tweets back. And it right. was Tim Houlihan via Twitter commented back to you. Uh, and uh, you described him as bitter. So here's what he said. I asked a question via Twitter that Carl described as bitter. Sorry, it came off that way. 
It's hard in 140 characters to be diplomatic. I'm a a big fan of .NET and have spent most of my professional career in the Microsoft tool space. I do spend time in other communities, such as Rails, and have friends in Java and other stacks. The patterns and practices emphasized in Sharp, that is uh, domain-driven design, dependency injection, TDD, BDD, and Solid, are still viewed with suspicion and slowly adopted in the .NET community. For example, Carl asked the guest to better explain DDD, expecting that many in the audience needed that. My question was not to insult a community I'm part of, but just to understand it. On a Java show, that term wouldn't need to be clarified. DDD has been around a long time, long enough that the CQRS folks are questioning DDD as a pattern. I regularly meet resistance when I try to get .NET developers on our projects to use IOC That's uh, rather than factory patterns. All of this adds up to me wondering how the .NET community has grown differently, that it questions patterns that are de facto in other communities. Am I being representative of the entire .NET community? I don't know about that. Do I have that responsibility on my shoulders? (laughs) Dude, I am a talk show host, okay? Easy. Hey, all right. But I also think is, you know, the, the reality of the .NET community is very diverse. We get, you know, what I like is that we get emails routinely saying, you guys go too fast, slow down. Right. You guys are going too slow, f- speed up. You know, it, it, it is a spread. And so we try and make sure we're carrying as many people along well, as we can. Not only that, but we also have a lot of developers who don't do business software. You know, we yep. have developers that do all sorts of stuff. So it's good to clarify these terms. For I sure. I think it's good. Given that these guys are pushing those patterns, I thought they would have a useful insight, and they did. I also really thought that Carl's point about business development as a different driver of patterns was useful, as was Richard's point that Microsoft tends to push many ways of completing the same tasks and letting the community evolve preferred practices. Thanks for the detailed discussion of my question. Again, I'm sorry if it came off a bit pointed. No hey, problem. Hey, Tim, it, it got you a mug. <laughs> Don't be too upset about it. It's all good. And, you know, in the end, I firmly believe this. Anything that generates more conversation is a positive thing. And if it needs to be pointed for that to happen, that's fine. If it doesn't need to be pointed, that's fine, too. Either way, we're not going to hold it against you. We're just going to tease you about it. Okay. And, yeah, a mug's on its way to you. I'll ping you in Twitter. And if you've got questions, concerns, ideas for shows, just want to dig into some details in more detail, drop in on the show that you care about and write a comment at .netrocks.com or send us an email, .netrocks at franklins.net. Well, Richard, I'm really excited because our guest today is Carrie Hamill, and Carrie is a senior program manager with Microsoft Research. She previously spent several years in Windows working on the graphics platforms, and in her spare time, she's turning into a gadget fiend. Welcome, Carrie. Hi. Oh, welcome to .NET Rocks. Yeah, it's great to be here. Um, it's great to talk to you guys again. Well, you're in good company. We've interviewed a lot of people from Microsoft Research and uh, in in Cambridge in particular. So tell us what you're working on. I'm working on .NET Gadgeteer right now. Uh, that's been my main focus for the last year or so. Uh, .NET Gadgeteer is a platform for building small electronics devices, and it is geared for people who um, have an idea but don't necessarily have an electronics background or an engineering background, but they want to bring that idea to life. So uh, Gadgeteer consists of uh, hardware components that you can plug together, no soldering, and uh, software that lets you program from Visual Studio using the .NET micro framework. So if you've ever written a .NET program for the desktop, for the phone, for the cloud, then the programming model is very, very similar, and you can apply all that knowledge to building your device. 
So we've used the micro framework before, and I've gotten a few gadgets, uh, you know, little gadgets that clip together and and have USB adapters and all sorts of crazy stuff and motors. What's different about this is the hardware? Yeah, the hardware is a little bit different. Uh, the hardware is abstracted in a way that makes it so that you can plug all sorts of different devices from different manufacturers together using one type of plug. So if you've played with things like a Fez, a Fez Panda board or a Netduino board. That's exactly what we have. Yeah. So uh, those ones, you plug wires in and then you plug wires. Um, often you have a breadboard and then you, you actually do a little bit of electronics wiring to hook up your devices. And in Gadgeteer, you'd have something like a motor module in a single package with one socket on it. And all you have to do is connect to the ribbon cable. Ooh, I like it. <laughs> I like it a lot. It's gadgets for non-electronics people. Gadgets for non-electronics people. And if you want, you can get down into the electronics. You can you can have a breakout for any socket and wire stuff up directly to it. But you can get really far really quickly uh, with sophisticated devices without having to crack open the electronics box. Now, now what is this um, unified hardware plug called? Um, we just pick, it's the 10 pin connector. Yeah, it's not, um, I would have to look up a part number. I could tell you exactly what it is, but it's just, uh, oh, it doesn't have a snappy name. <laughs> it doesn't have a snappy name. Um, but it's a snappy connector. You can only put it in one way and it's very, very sticky. Right. And there's no difference in voltage between anything that uses this particular connector. There's no chance that we could fry something. There's no chance that you would fry something. So, uh, each socket, has uh, the same power. It has 3.3 volts on pin 1 and 5 volts on pin 2 and ground on pin 10. And so oh. even if you plug into the wrong socket, the worst that will happen is that your main board won't recognize the module. So it looks like wow. uh, the cornerstone of this whole thing is this spider main board? Well, the cornerstone of the Gadgeteer um, architecture is a main board, and the Fez Spider is the very first main board that's been announced for retail sale. Oh, okay. And so you can uh, pre-order that from GHI right now for delivery at the end of September. Nice. But the platform awesome. is designed around the idea of you could have modules from many vendors. We want there to be a really diverse set of modules, uh, anything you can think of that you can plug in. And there could be main boards of other types and sizes and capabilities as well. And are there existing right now lots of different modules from hardware vendors? Right now, the GHI Fed Spider Kits, the one that's been commercially announced, uh, several other manufacturers, Seed Studio, DF Robot, SciTech, are the ones so far have announced that they're working on products, but they haven't posted their products online yet. And, and is Gadgeteer the, the name that unifies them all together? Exactly. They'll all be called for .NET Gadgeteer or .NET Gadgeteer compatible. Awesome. Well, and I'm looking at this main board, and it, yeah, it's just a a 10 pin connector it's very unassuming but they've used it for everything so exactly. your, your usb connectors are there your ethernet connector is there uh any lcd panels you want to plug in use the same kind of connector so it just makes things wow. very simple exactly so then instead of thinking about pin outs or that kind of thing each module is coded with the type of sockets it can work on and each mainboard socket is coded with the types of modules it will accept. Right. So you just have to match up the letters on the two to plug your module into the right socket. So so simple, even a programmer could do it. <laughs> yes. 
Yeah, this is the way electronics programming should be. <laughs> For guys like me, anyway. Yeah. Yeah. This portion of .NET Rocks is brought to you by our good friends at Telerik. Hey, can you ever have too many free tools to complement your development skills? I didn't think so. So our friends at Telerik are giving you now more than 30 free products for application development, automated testing, agile project management, and content management. And we're talking free-free. Not a trial, not a demo, but free, complete products supported by a community of over 440,000 developers at Telerik Forums. From free ASP.NET AJAX, ASP.NET MVC, and Silverlight controls to the free ORM solution and automated testing framework to free agile management tools and content management systems, all of these and more are available to you for immediate download at Telerik.com slash free stuff. Most of the free products can be used for commercial purposes and give you access to supplemental support resources such as documentation and forms. Go to Telerik.com slash free stuff now and take full advantage of the available free of charge products. And don't forget to thank them for supporting .NET Rocks. I, my experience with electronics has usually been to fry my devices because I didn't have the right wall wart and I went and got one that had either too strong or too weak in amperage or voltage and didn't know. I can never remember that it is it more amps are okay or less amps are okay? I can never remember. <laughs> yeah. And, and you'll fry it if if it's one or the other. Oh, and then polarity. Don't get me started about that. You get the, those Radio Shack adapters with the polarity tip that you have to flip over, and if it's not the right one, oh, yeah, guess what? Sizzle fix. <laughs> All the magic smoke goes out. The <laughs> magic smoke, yeah. <laughs> Oh. That's one of those Mad Magazine Don whatever his name was. Who is the guy who did the cover on the back of Mad Magazine Don somebody? Yeah. But he always had these great words for sounds and my favorite one for frying electronics was sizzle fits. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we've all had one of those. <laughs> all right, anyway. So this all comes back I didn't mean to derail you with my stupidity. I I would have called them standard electronic challenges. <laughs> yeah. Some of us are more comfortable with soldering irons than the others, I think. Yes, yeah, some of us were desoldering uh, circuit boards when they were three, <laughs> Richard. <laughs> it's what happens when your father's an electrical engineer. You learn early. Yeah. <laughs> it's great. You, you know what? This has actually pulled me back in. I hadn't soldered anything since school. Oh. And then after, you, you know, so Gadgeteer kind of pulls you in. You can plug some really cool stuff together. You know, see a result, and then you're like, well, what if I could, what if I want to do one more thing? And now I find myself uh, occasionally pulling out the soldering iron, and it's a great way to get people into electronics from the standpoint of getting them excited about what they can build. Well, let's get them excited about what they can build. Tell tell us, because I don't have a web browser in front of me right now where I am. So, some either of you guys tell us one of the one or a few of the different modules that you can put together and use and then some of maybe some of the crazy devices that could be built with them. Absolutely. So the modules that you can use in the Fed Spider Kit include a three and a half inch touchscreen L C D, a camera, yeah. a the camera that's capable of streaming video or taking still shots. There's wow. uh Ethernet interface, a USB host mm-hmm. interface, so you could plug in a USB drive or a keyboard, mouse, other uh human input device. There's okay. SD card storage and some buttons and a joystick. So 
uh, we've built a couple things just with that kit. One is a old style arcade console. It's uh, it's about six inches mm. high, but it looks like a miniature arcade cabinet. Mm. Um, using laser cutter to build the case and screen to show the game and the joystick to play the game. So you can program all kinds of games for that. And what about Wi-Fi? There's a Wi-Fi module that'll be an add-on to the Spider Kit. Okay. And in terms of motors and buzzers and things like that, you know, like phone vibrators and things? Those are, uh, so motors are among the modules that are coming in the second wave. Um, so we've got vendors building uh, at least one type of motor, maybe a couple types of motor. Um, mm. There's going to be a sound codec module, so it'll play mm-hmm. MP3s or MIDI files or whatever wow. type of sound you want. So the sound thing will have like an eighth-inch jack kind of thing? Uh, yes. So the, so the sound thing has, it's actually, I think, a quarter-inch jack on one of them. And wow. then a group in research, uh, an intern this summer, built a MIDI and DMX module, which is used to control sound synthesizers and light systems and fog systems. Well, and Okay. Boing. <laughs> now you fixed <laughs> my interest. <laughs> I am such a MIDI geek, it's not even funny. So, oh, wonderful. Yeah, this is really cool. I've done talks on MIDI, and this stands for Musical Instrument Digital Interface. Here's the the trick, guys. There are so many MIDI devices and controllers out there, sliders, knobs, dials, buttons, switches, keyboards, you name it, and and they're all cheap because they're uh, geared towards musicians, and as we know, musicians have all the money in the world, right? So, no, they don't. They're very poor, <laughs> especially if they're working musicians. That means you get you play for beer. But um, so so basically you have a lot of these cheap devices that you can just connect to your computer. One of the things that I did early on in .NET was I wrote a wrapper, a managed wrapper for the MIDI, low-level MIDI stack in Windows so that you can route inputs to outputs and do all that kind of stuff just in .NET. And there are other tools that do it, of course, too. So now you can make something with a touchscreen and buttons that will send a MIDI command to to something else. So, Richard, now I can play my piano across the world using a touchscreen. Right. And, and <laughs> using a .NET Micro Framework, too, so really compact yeah. and small. And I bet it's got to be fast. How fast is the processor? Uh, the processor is pretty beefy. It's a 76 megahertz ARM 7 core, if I remember correctly. Seven core? No, seventy six megahertz ARM seven processor type. Yeah, ARM seven. Oh, the ARM seven yeah. core, not ARM seven core. Okay. Oh, I wish. Although that'd probably that probably be would... bad things for our power consumption. Yeah. Yeah, single probably. core <laughs> CPU, uh, five megabyte flash chip on it, so plenty of memory for an embedded system. Ah, it's wow. A, yeah, ARM makes the, those are all the thirty two bit line. Like it's a it's a nice little processor right this is the thing the old the original ipods use them yeah right? exactly they're they're a good little chipset yes and a 32-bit yeah. processor um you have flat address space from the program standpoint so you can you don't really have to worry about all, all the weird addressing tricks that you had to do on the 8-bit processors well the micro framework takes care of that anyway doesn't isn't there memory management built into the .NET micro framework? Yeah, there is memory management built into the .NET micro framework and it's uh it's pretty snappy. You can for the most part with the projects we've built you just allocate your memory and forget about it and the garbage collector is pretty polite. And do you have sockets support in the micro framework? Oh, in terms of networking sockets? Uh-huh. Um 
I am not sure if we have socket level support. I've only played with the higher level APIs. So uh, for Gadgeteer, we built some networking libraries that expose web services on the Gadgeteer mainboard or allow the mainboard to call web services on uh, Windows Phone 7 or on a PC or in an Azure service. And so I pretty much have just been doing networking at that level. Okay. I'm, it's got to be there. Hang on. Be I'm just there. looking it up. I can't help myself. There you go. Spot, yeah, Microsoft.spot.net namespace providing native level socket support in the .NET micro framework. MSDN. Okay, that's all we need. MSDN knows all and tells all, my friend. Anything <laughs> you need to know. System.net.sockets. All right. I got MIDI. I got sockets. I got audio. I got touch screen. I got Wi-Fi. Look out, world. <laughs> yeah. I'm serious, man. That That's some serious fun right there. That's a lot of, a lot of capabilities. And I haven't even started telling you about all the sensors. Uh-oh. All right, let's hear about the sensors. So uh, there's all the ones you've come to expect in your phone, an accelerometer, a compass, a gyro. There's a company working on uh, environmental sensors, so a soil moisture sensor, uh, ambient light sensor. Whoa. Uh, you can have your plant tweet when it gets too dry. <laughs> it's a classic one. Water me. Yeah. Right. <laughs> water me exactly uh, you and, know i would go one step further and have the temperature moisture sensor uh trigger a drip that with a tube that comes through the floor into the plant that so the plant can say i'm thirsty and the water goes boop, 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 that's the safest in. there's no in, there's no human intervention necessary for this poor plant that's, and that's those are the kind of plant me. systems that I need in my house because I'm notorious for killing plants. Me too. <laughs> <laughs> this does that does seem like a little bit of overkill for an automated watering solution. But actually I do have an automated watering solution for my house. I just haven't put it in yet, but it is that kind of thing where you hook it up to a, a faucet and it's got a timer on it and it's programmable and you've got, you know, 30 different tubes going off in different directions with lots of lots of feet of tubing, uh, drill holes in the floor, go up into the plants and just have a ball. So uh, that's that's my uh, my winter project. Oh, very cool. Way. Very cool. As long as we're geeking out here. I've also seen pressure sensors. Do you have pressure sensors like, um, you know, things that respond to being bent or, or pushed? That's one we're looking at. I don't know if it's on the next wave of sensors or not, but definitely looking at that one. Um, we're looking at a barometric pressure sensor as well. That would be for... It's for weather. For weather, and it can also tell very small changes in elevation over a short period of time. Like it can tell if you've gone up a half a, half a floor. <laughs> Okay. That's cool. So it's useful if you want to tell. Sometimes people use it for inertial navigation, for, you know, helping you find your way back to your car. It knows you went down three floors and you need to go up three floors to get to your car in the garage. Yeah, I just like the idea of yeah. uh, carrying a device around that says, I'm in an elevator as soon as you start going up. Uh -huh. I love it. <laughs> what about GPS? Yeah, so the ah. uh, radio stuff. There's GPS in the works. Mm -hmm. There's... Uh, Cell, cell phone radio style stuff in the works. You could actually make a call from your gadgeteer to your, you can call yourself or you can call something else or you can use the data or the SMS channels to communicate over long distances. Nice. So my plant can text me that it watered itself. Yeah, totally. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I have an automated watering system too. It's called children. <laughs> yeah. 
slightly less complicated on the electronics. Yes. Well, and they, and not you, as reliable. Totally, yeah, totally different maintenance problems. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah, they require a lot of input before they give you any output. <laughs> well, they, they age somewhat differently than electronics. Hopefully, longer lifetime than than my projects to date. We would hope. Um, how big is the screen? You said the one right now is three and a half inches. There's another one in the works that's uh, that's smaller. It's about 128 by 128 pixels and maybe an inch and a half square. Sometimes you want big display. Sometimes you just want a little readout. Are there any plans to support larger tablet-sized screens? Uh, possibly. The challenge becomes costs. How much will people pay for a module, and is it economically feasible? Yeah, you, I mean, you've got the price right. down here. I'm looking at the pricing on the .NET Gadgeteer site for a GHI. And that uh, three and a half inch touchscreen is only a hundred dollars. Yeah, like, that's really wow. quite a bargain. It's only three twenty by two forty, but for a small device, that's just fine. Yeah, it's yep. a really, really good price, and you can, you know, with the touchscreen, it becomes an input device as well. So mm-hmm. suddenly, your your gadget can most have that be mostly its surface, maybe a couple of knobs and dials for other tweaking. But you know, it, it really cleans up the the industrial design for a lot of stuff. Yeah. You're exactly right. I, I'm wondering how much of my existing uh, Arduino and Fez gear and so forth is going to work with this. If you are able to wire it up yourself, you can use it with Gadgeteer in a number of ways. So you could make a serial connection between them. Right. You could use, or if you want to get really low level, you could wire anything up that connects to I2C bus or SPI bus. I think the more interesting thing here, Richard, is taking the code that runs on your uh you know, Neutrino or Fez, and then just running it on one of these devices because it's .NET Microframework. It, it should do the same thing. Yeah, well, and it it's, should just port over. I think the Fez Cobra board is is also ARM7, like literally should just port across, make no difference at all. Yeah, it's the exact same CPU, and right. it should just port across. The differences are that you'd be calling into Gadgeteer modules and and driving your, your modules that way. Or, uh, That's why we have layers of abstraction, though, Carrie. Yeah. We, we as developers <laughs> always do that. We shouldn't have to know. And I'm just thinking, because as soon as you can play with the Fez gear, they make like a seven-inch touchscreen. It's about 200 bucks. Like There yeah. are bigger options out there. If Once you get to this point, it feels to me like that the .NET Gadgeteer line is great intro material, make it really painless to get started in this. And if you get obsessed like some of us might... Uh, mm-hmm. There's lots of lot. You know, let's get more people playing with this stuff. It, it's, I find our jobs all too often are just arranging electrons. It's nice to make things move. <laughs> <laughs> it is really nice to have a physical manifestation of all the all the thinking. Absolutely. Yeah. Wow, this is great. I got to get me some of this. So, yeah. where's the website? Is it GHI Electronics? So there's a Gadgeteer community site um, that is at netms.com slash Gadgeteer. Um, that's partially launched right now. Uh, ultimately, that site's going to be where you can look at a showcase of all the projects available for Gadgeteer, uh, projects of things that people have built. If you've built something really cool, you can write it up and post it in the project showcase. There's going to be forums and links off to blogs and you know, in latest news and, and information about Gadgeteer. That will also link to GHI's website for the Gadgeteer products and it'll link to other manufacturers' websites as they come online. But it just feels oh, like you guys are pulling together 
a somewhat diverse market. Like the, the, this market's been thriving. We've done a few shows in the space. And then it's nice to see Microsoft sort of jumping in and saying, oh, well, let's try and create a more unified architecture for all of this. It's sort of something I think uh, we've been doing a lot of the design in conjunction with hardware vendors. Mm -hmm. So it's been, been very much a, a group effort to figure out the right way to, you know, the right ways to design the abstraction layer and the right way to uh, design the physical form factor uh, guidelines so that the, everything will work well together. Um, the entire ecosystem is now accessible to so many more people that uh, it, it is good business and it's also exciting for hobbyists, exciting for education. You can imagine teaching courses based on gadgeteer and getting people excited about building stuff in a whole new way. Oh, sure. Oh, yeah. But in, how do we get this into more of the in the commercials? I really want this in my dishwasher. I want my dishwasher yeah. to have an IP address. I want to be texted by my dishwasher <laughs> when the dishes are right. clean. Right. I, so it seems, I guess, I guess what he's saying is this is great for prototyping. Once I want to put something into production, how does that, how, how can I possibly do it? Yeah, this is great for prototyping, and we're hoping that it will be a useful tool for pre professional prototypers, too. Uh, Gadgeteer originally started in MSR Cambridge as a way for them to prototype systems for the sensor and embedded networking projects. They would find themselves, you know, putting stuff together and taking it apart, except that it wasn't always reusable. And so the first iteration of Gadgeteer let them put stuff together, take it apart, and reuse it. Right. And do it in a matter of hours instead of days or weeks to get a custom circuit board. So... We hope that this becomes useful for industrial houses who are designing your next dishwasher to try out a concept, prove that it works, and then uh, the next step after that would be to either design an embedded app based on a NetMF processor and design the circuit board yourself or hire somebody to design the circuit board based on all of the schematics for the pieces that you used in your gadgeteer project. Well, I don't even know that they could beat the pricing. Mm. I mean, we were talking about these main boards at $100 with all the plugs right. and stuff on them. Like, the cost of labor alone to man to design a smaller board like that, it's almost not worth it anymore. Like, I think we've almost commoditized this stuff. A $100 well, charge... To, to put to put an IP address into an appliance, I think it's really mm -hmm. compelling. Yeah, well, I don't know. So I mean, if Richard, if you think if you think about how a board could be mass produced for you know a couple of bucks that has all these things on it at at scale, it's it's not practical to use this stuff as is. You know, if you're if you're selling a dishwasher for six hundred dollars, you don't want you know more than half of that to be electronics. Yeah. Yeah, so we do, there's a point. One of the cool things about the Gadgeteer kit is that your inflection point for where it becomes economical to switch over to a custom solution, it gives you a little bit of room to build one, five, ten for friends or enough to do a small concept test if you have a commercial idea. And then, yes, at some point it will be more economical to go off and have a custom solution built, but you can, you can get a lot of work done before you start having to you know, take on that overhead front-end manufacturing yeah. cost for a large-scale run. Yeah, the prototyping costs are practically non-existent. I mean, relatively speaking. Well, the, yeah, the point being everything's reusable. Exactly. If you don't like it, you can take it apart and use it for something else. Use it for your next project. And, uh, you know, while you've got something else and you've got something in the manufacturing pipeline, you're already moving off to your next idea. Yeah. To get it ready. But I, Very I, cool. I'm definitely in the space where I want every appliance in my house to have a Wi-Fi address. In fact, I just yesterday got a bathroom scale with Wi-Fi in it. 
So that's, that's a crazy. It's a little frightening, <laughs> but now I, I, you know, I step on my scale, and then when I get down to my machine, there's a report showing me how my weight is progressing. Carrie, ask him about his toilet seat. <laughs> I don't even want to know. <laughs> no, no, go ahead, ask him. <laughs> Carrie, go ahead. Does it tweet? No, it doesn't. The toilet seat does not tweet. It does not have an IP address. It does, however, have a number of buttons, some of which are gender specific. Oh, I see. (laughs) Now, there is a basic issue with this toilet seat, and I've said this before on the show, which is that it is plugged into the wall, so you have to be comfortable with the idea there's 120 volts, awfully close (laughs) to some delicate bits. But it's a very fine toilet seat. I have nothing good, good things to say about this. I've come to love this toilet seat. Yeah. Okay. And then, moving on. The show moving to on. a screeching halt. <laughs> <laughs> but it doesn't She's have an horrified I- now, Richard. It's a good IP. It, is, it doesn't have an IP address. More of our appliances need IP addresses. I'm just saying. At Franklin's Net right now, you can get a DVD with over 11 hours of Billy Hollis on Silverlight 4 or 14 hours of Sahil Malik on SharePoint 2010, each for only six ninety five. Order online at www.franklins.net. Are you looking to change jobs? Infusion Development has offices in New York City, Toronto, London, Dubai, and Poland. Infusion has hired a whole handful of happy.net rocks listeners. Contact me for an introduction at carl at franklins.net. So have you guys been following the Internet of Things trends? Yes. Tell me. The concept that there are going to be more and more and more devices that are connected, whether it be your appliances or... Uh, arrays of sensors in the environment, um, just huge amounts of connected devices all generating data that will be interesting to somebody. And, well, just, I like it. Yeah, it, it's a common way to connect everything together. This is really the, the idea that we need IPv6 in a big way, that just the sheer number of an average person is going to end up with several hundred, even thousand addresses that are rela- related to them from all of their things. Hey, Richard, I'm trying to ping you. What's your IPv6 address? Go ahead. Nice. Tell me. It'll actually be my name in some particular way. You know, we're going to stop needing IP addresses per se. Oh, that's good. That's good news. But, you know, the more interesting thing about IPv6, and I don't mean to go Pass on an phrases. IPv6 rant here, is this idea that even though I may move around and my addri- my, a part of my address will change depending on my connection, a chunk of it goes with me. As, as if it is a Mac, because we're, it's wide enough that I can have an array of addresses that are easily de- identifiable as related to me. And then you have your own personal name server, essentially, that is the, ne- the hierarchy piece that knows where all your devices are. Right, and, has that, and does that name translation. So, Richard, you're saying you could come up with a passphrase, essentially, that will translate to your IPv6 address? Yeah, we, we you'd call it DNS, but it, it's along the same lines. Hmm. We're we're in at an interesting time, without a doubt. And the Internet of Things is a really big idea, and and, and I really think that .NET Micro Framework and so forth is about making it real reasonable that more things have an IP address. Exactly. I'm not crazy about toasters and refrigerators. To, I mean, the refrigerator ordering up milk when it's low. I mean, come on, really. There are much more practical ways to and, and cooler devices that you can build than that. But I hear that all the time. You know, I don't need the milk. I don't need the fridge to order the milk. But it would be nice if the fridge told me how much milk there was and how old it was. But you can open the door and see. But yeah. here's the thing. 
Here's the thing I would like. I would like a coffee maker that I can start from my cell phone. There you go. Because, you know, when you wake up in the morning or whatever, you hit the alarm clock, that's when I, I don't want it to go off. You know, I don't want it to dictate when I should get up. I want it to go off when I get up. It should know that you get up after four snoozes. Right. That's right. Or, or, you know, the idea that once it sees you, once the house sees you in motion in the bathroom, it lets the coffee maker know and the coffee maker kicks in. That's what I'm talking about. I, I yeah, just... so there's a project in research that uh, is, they called it, they're calling it Home OS, I think, and the idea is to have your house be aware. Uh, the first research angle was around energy consumption, um, right. being aware of where you are and what you're doing so that it can turn off heating in a room that you're not going to be in all day, for example. Mm-hmm. But then you can imagine it moving on to your home, helping you with stuff like knowing, sensing you're moving and knowing that it should start your your morning appliances, your coffee maker, you know, start getting ready for breakfast, that kind of thing. Richard, was it Stacy we were talking about, about uh, the guy who developed a system for his house that he was able to save something like 40 or 50 percent on his electricity usage? By having a smart uh, uh, automated system, yeah, we've had a, we've done a couple of shows with folks around that, and and you know we're headed towards this model in general with power. Uh, this is something I've talked about with Yuval Lowe before. I don't we ever did a show on this? This idea of an energy net that if all of my devices can report to me and can add, know how much power they need to consume when they need to consume it, you get into this idea of I tell my dishwasher I need the dishes clean by tomorrow morning. When you do mm. them is not my problem get them clean by tomorrow morning. And now it can assess, well, when's power cheapest? So now we get to this idea that the power grid can actually change its rates. They're doing this in the UK now. There's a daytime rate and a nighttime rate. But what if it was hour to hour so that it knows, hey, power's cheapest at four in the morning? It's going to have to be second to second because when it's cheapest, everybody's going to be starting to use it and then it won't be so cheap anymore. You know what I mean? At a certain point, if everybody's taking advantage of the cheap time for power... Then the demand goes up at that point, yep. and as sooner or later, it evens out. Well, and, and it shifts around, and it also gets more interesting when you start thinking about things like, then I put a windmill on my house, and it gets windy in the middle of the night. You know, at 2 o'clock in the morning, it got windy, and I suddenly had power that was incredibly cheap because it was mine, and the dishwasher kicked in then. Mm. Yeah, and another benefit would be you'd be spreading the load across the entire grid right. pretty evenly, which at high pro- high consumption times like summer is really important to the stability of the mm-hmm. grid. So even if it evens out and everybody ends up paying about the same all day long, you aren't facing brownouts or, or points of stress during the hottest time of the day. Well, we see a 50% differential between peak and base on a lot of power generation. So we suddenly get a lot more power if we can use it a lot smoother. But that's only one piece of this idea of an intelligent home. Just, you know, the concept of knowing what people rooms people are in, where they're moving around, uh, you know, having lights follow you, which, you know, I already do that in a few rooms in my house, which really just dis- actually disturbs a lot of visitors. They, <laughs> they wander into a room and the room comes up just a little bit of light. So you could, you know, it, it recognizes it's late at night. You're walking through this hallway. I'm going to put on a little bit of wash light for you just so you don't kick, stub your toe. It, it, it gives people the willies that, you know, houses respond to them. They just don't expect that. All right. So here's one. How about speech recognition? Tough problem. Micro framework. It is because it requires, and I'm talking about the micro framework here because it requires a lot more power. 
to be yeah. you know responsive. Yes, we haven't gotten very far with putting speech recognition algorithms on on Gadgeteer, at least. Uh, there may be other work for the micro-framework that's not Gadgeteer-based that's going on. One thing we're finding with Gadgeteer is that it's almost always the cheapest, easiest solution to create a daughter board with a small uh, CPU, like a CPU that costs less than a dollar, a Cortex-A0 or something like that, and then have it do pre-processing of sensor data and then pass on the higher-level inferences to the CPU. Those types of boards, if you've got a source of somebody who can throw one together really quick and have them manufactured for you, it's way cheaper than trying to spend weeks optimizing software to do everything on the main board. So this idea I, of I had, having a dedicated voice recognition module, something that's built exactly to do what that. I was thinking. That's mm-hmm. Richard, exactly what I was thinking. If you had even a box that's iPhone sized or something like that, whose job it is is to process speech and to synthesize speech. And then send out the text by whatever means, HTTP, HTML, sockets, text, a keyboard a connector so that it could simulate a keyboard, just all, all kinds of things like that. But then, then you're taking, because let's face it, speech, not only is it a, um, it's one of those things that needs to have a dedicated machine because you, you start tweaking around with the different voices and swapping voices in and out. And the you're running some stuff in the background that's going to affect its performance, you know. Absolutely. That yeah, you know, there's another angle to this, which would be to rope the cloud into it. That the that the micro framework device is purely the microphone that grabs the recording, pumps it to the cloud. The cloud does the analysis and sends back the the commands. Absolutely. Yeah, that's a good idea. As long it's the question is, is it fast enough? You know, how good is our connection? Can we do that quickly enough that the user feels like it's still responsive? There's tasks for where you would want it to be done as locally as possible because it's high priority, and right. there's tasks for which it can do some of the stuff in the background. Like if it were, if you were attempting to build dictation, and it didn't need to, you know, appear in real time in front of the person who's dictating it. You can batch process in the background, and then it's interesting to look at, well, can I use Azure Compute since, uh, you know, there's so much compute resources out, essentially out there in the air from the standpoint of my gadget, offload all the stuff that can be done in the background. Yeah, I think you could do an awful lot of offload with that. And, I mean, connectivity is only getting faster, too, so... You know, now we're talking, considering how much horsepower is available in the cloud, how quickly you could translate a, a simple command, you're talking still, I bet you could do it in fractions of a second. It's it's fast enough. Yeah, the big question is the latency and how much, um, you know, just the, the time to establish a connection and get the data uploaded. Yeah. Is that latency a problem for your intended use? If not, then you can get your results back in a really short period of time. Yeah. There's a, I think there's a whole topic here around interacting the .NET framework with the cloud. Yeah, Just absolutely. Just all the bits. You know, the funny part about that bathroom scale is that's actually what the bathroom scale is doing. It's connected to my Wi-Fi node, but it's actually pumping up my weight to a service that I'm then looking at via the web. That's a little creepy. And when you do stuff like that, now you also have a point for analytics yep. of data over time. Um, whatever you want to infer from, from a, you know, a pattern of data, or if you are doing speech recognition, your recognizer can get better. It's always self-training. Mm-hmm. 
Well, I think, Richard, you've hit on something here, which is combining the the microframework device or the gadgeteer device in the cloud in general. Yeah. I think because you've got that connectivity, you can offload lots of things onto the cloud. And now suddenly this device becomes not just, you know, something that can do the computation on its own, but can interface with a whole bunch of stuff. And so now you're thinking about yeah. device architectures as being, it, it's completely different than when it was just a local computer, maybe with a couple of network connections. Now your your architecture could look like a gadget here and a service up in the cloud there and another gadget over there talking to your phone. So it's a pretty fascinating inflection point, I think, for the way we think about what our computing devices are. Well, and this, these little ARM processors are great at collecting input and displaying results, but let the heavy lifting happen in the cloud. Yeah, you can do quite a bit locally as these processors get get bigger and bigger. I mean, the um, the phone processors these days are faster than your desktop computer was five years ago. So uh, you've got, for when you need to do stuff locally, you can, and when you can do stuff with uh, uh, latency or when you do want stuff stored for long term, you've got options for uh, fluid computing boundaries back and forth. Yeah, I guess if we do this right, you can't even tell what's doing what. Exactly. Wow, this is great. I'm, you know, I'm minutes away from ordering mine. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> and we, uh, these things aren't shipping till the end of September. This show is going to come out before that, but uh, it is uh, still a few weeks away. But you can pre-order. You can pre-order. And nothing. Love it. The, this is not actually different per se from the Arduinos and the the Fezes and so forth. This is a part and parcel with this. You've just come up with a design I think that's a little easier for the non-electronics person. That'd is. be me. It's a different level of abstraction mm -hmm. of the hardware interface. That's what we need. Yep. Just makes it that much simpler to do. Exactly. Well, it's been a pleasure talking to you this hour. Yeah. Likewise. And uh, so keep doing what you guys do. You're awesome. Thank you. Yeah, we're uh, we're having a blast, and we're really excited about everything that's coming. So keep an eye out on the Gadgeteer community site. We'll be posting new products there as they're announced. And uh, I hope you enjoy your first Fez Spider Kit. Oh, I certainly will. Thank you, Carrie. Thank you. All right, and we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is recorded and produced by Pwop Productions, providing professional audio, audio mastering, video, post-production, and podcasting services. Online at www.pwop.com. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and offering custom on-site classes in Microsoft development technology with expert developers online at www.franklins.net For more .NET Rocks episodes and to subscribe to the podcast feeds go to our website at www.dotnetrocks.com Got a transmitter band by the FCC Yes, I'm a 